Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Gordon, how are you? Very good, Will. How are you? I'm well. The air is smoky in our town. I saw a big bank of smoke going over. It wasn't right over Moscow. It was over by Lewiston and then sort of wrapped around the east side. But There's a couple of fires in the area. One down a Soton area. Okay, that makes sense. And another one near the port of Wilma. Mm-hmm. So just downstream on the Snake River from Clarkston. Uh, fire started yesterday wow. down there. So, so that, that was definitely what I was seeing. Yeah. And that's pretty normal for for uh, this is a little maybe a little early. There have been some years where it seemed smoky all summer. Yeah. Been some years where we really got spoiled and didn't have hardly any smoke at all. And others just kind of August, yeah. early September smoke. And this smoke is from wildfires. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the part of being a Westerner, this is not just the Western US, but for US folks, uh, the Western wildfire season is really a significant phenomenon. Yeah. And so that's what we're chatting about today. Yeah. So a a super interesting topic. Yeah. And it's uh, close to home. I was, uh, during college, I um, fought fires in uh, Northern Washington. Okay. I was on a 20-man initial attack fire crew for the Department of Natural Resources. So it wasn't Forest Service. We would fight fires with Forest Service guys and hotshot crews and smoke jumpers and stuff like that. And it was a great experience. I took a, a year off between seasons. There was three summers I did it, 79, 81, and 83. Wow. I had to sort of have a year off to forget how miserable I was. <laughs> <laughs> and then you then you went for two. Yep. No, it's it's one of the things that I wish I would have thought about during my earlier years, just to be on a fire crew for one season would have mm-hmm. been a, a neat experience. Any, maybe some of your memories will pop up as we talk about yeah, this stuff. But, but we're, yeah, wanted to talk about wildfire as it relates to our dominion over nature mm-hmm. and what's the best course of action. Of course, different places, different ecosystems have different factors and we have to be wise. It's not one size fits all management plan on how to use fire. Do we always try to put them out? Do we work with the natural rhythms of fire? And how how do we prevent these devastating mega fire where yeah. you've got a huge amount of accumulated fuel or fires like in the Chaparral fires in the coastal areas of California, yeah. which are not as fuel dominant. Obviously, there's fuel, but they're wind dominated. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter uh, if there is a fire that went through a year or two before, because a lot of that uh, shrub uh, grows, shrubland and grass grow back, and you can have fires year after year, and it's just mostly wind dominated. Whereas up in the Sierras, you've got a fuel, fuel dominated, where have less people sprinkled in there, but a lot more fuel. And and when they get torched, it's something pretty devastating. Yeah. And then this is a challenging topic. It's a challenging topic because there are 
you know, of course, there are economic and political overtones. Uh, it's a challenging topic, as you mentioned, because God designed designed different ecosystems differently. Right. And so different ecosystems, some might not even have fire as a regular disturbance. Right. And some have fire as a very irregular, hundreds of years between major fires. Yeah. And, and sometimes some it's more periodically. a couple, yeah, a couple decades. Yeah. So we and call but, that a fire regime. Mm-hmm. And it's a really important part of a lot of the a lot of the conifer, and as you mentioned, uh, some of the more shrub step type ecosystems in the Western U.S. Another challenge is that the science doesn't always line up to tell one necessary story, or I would say maybe more importantly, the science doesn't always line up to clearly dictate one policy as a, a panacea right. for all of these It's um, not different one issues. size fits all. It's really not. Right. Yeah. So what is, what is, what, are the, what do we need to get a fire? What is the perfect recipe? What are the different components for a wildfire to occur? Yeah, fuel. You got to have a lot of either a lot of leaf litter accumulation, a lot of, yeah, just a lot of wood, wood and leaf litter. And you have to have something that, well, combustible material. And then you have to have something that starts the fire, whether it's human carelessness, arson, lightning strikes exhaust pipe that catches catches the grass a horseshoe on a horse striking a rock i was talking to a friend of mine who goes up in the cascades uh, on mule mule treks every year Mm -hmm. and they bring a mule they bring a mule train and they bring a whole bunch of kids and if you watch the mule train at night you actually see the sparks fly as these mules walk through the woods and so there have been years where they yeah they hit the rock that metal from the shoe hits the rock and they're this this year they are not doing a trip uh, because of that potential, uh, it's such a tinderbox wow. out there. Yeah. Uh, they're just going to pass. Yeah. And, you know, in so many places, the general strategy was to just, since we don't like burnt real estate, it makes things not as pretty as it used to be. And so the general course that we would take over the last hundred years or so is to put the fire out, you know, so Hence, I was on a fire crew and there's lots of fire crews all over the place that are dedicated to putting the fire out. And it's, it's not always the wisest uh, strategy. Yeah. Because if you always put the fire out, then there's this accumulation of woody material, a lot of fuel. And then when eventually it starts to build up, starts to accumulate. And then once it inevitably, something triggers it and it goes up. And when it goes up, it's a lot more devastating than if we uh, have more periodic controlled burns. Yeah. So fire is a design feature, mm -hmm. right? This is part of it. There are a lot of benefits to this fire. It does. uh, So maybe talking about the benefits and then weighing those, that's what right. we have to be doing is here. We have to weigh the benefits of, of this fire happening here mm-hmm. in this, in this location. And often, of course, in an, in an ideal world, we, we talk that way, but in a practical world, the place we might say probably won't burn for a while, a lightning strike occurs there. And so then we have to regroup and, and take a look at our, our planning again. Um, but fire is incredibly valuable. It makes mm-hmm. nutrients available. Right. It actually replenishes nutrients in a lot of Western watersheds are very nutrient poor. They're very, right. they're very cold and the nutrients leach out of organic material slowly. And so fire provides kind of a, what they call a pulse disturbance. Mm-hmm. 
where this, uh, these nutrients are made available uh, because of burned woody material and they can make their way down into the stream. They also make their way down into the soil and they enhance that soil and provide uh, lots of uh, resources for microbes, uh, for plants and fungus, and even dead woody material, especially dead standing woody material. I read a research report recently uh, that makes the case that a dead tree in a certain circumstance actually has more wildlife benefit than mm -hmm. a live tree. Mm -hmm. And so having these big snags. Big nursery tree. Yeah. Uh, and a snag. Nurse, yeah. Oh yeah. And nursery nurse trees uh, on the ground. A downed tree isn't a waste. Right. And a burned tree ne isn't necessarily a waste either. Right. So we have to be careful when we hear about a wildfire or when we drive by one and you see a burned landscape, you're going to be tempted to think, what a waste. Yeah. Well, well oh. not necessarily. Right. It might've been time for that to burn <sighs> and come back in three years. And you're going to see a vibrant community springing yeah. back to life. Exactly. You know, also fires knock down diseased trees mm. and eradicate insect pests. Sickly, weak, diseased trees don't always survive the fire, whereas healthy trees are more resistant. That's a good point. Uh, to the burn. And so in a good sense of natural selection, fire kind of weeds things out. Yeah. And makes a, like you said, a more vibrant community after the burn. But we often look at ecosystems as a sort of a snapshot. Yeah. And we want to sort of hang on to that beautiful snapshot, a sort of climax community that's like the postcard picture perfect. And often we don't realize we, we need to look at not the snapshot, but we have to look at the, the whole film. Yeah. And say, what, what were the factors that? went into making that ecosystem beautiful. And often several, maybe hundred years before, there was a big fire. Yeah. Major disturbance. Yeah. But when we sprinkle ourselves into it, it complicates things. Oh, doesn't Pl it? You know, it really does. People say, well, I love this place. I'm going to build there. You have to stay the money and you go in and build. And then you've got power lines that might not be properly maintained and then the power lines cause fires and so of course when you have human life endangered we we've got to we've got to protect that right but we have to back up and look at long range planning and be wise dominion yeah um, no and i think stewardship the, dominionship I think, yeah i I'm think the parable <laughs> of building on the sand versus building on the rock is a, is a, applicable here right you know, if you're building in a fire-prone area, this area that we often call the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface, WUI, which increasingly uh, folks have a good chunk of money. They buy some acreage mm -hmm. at the edge of the National Forest. Mm -hmm. It's a great place to be. Yeah. There's a National Forest in your backyard or there's private timber company land in your backyard. You know you're not going to have a, a huge development behind you. And so, and you love the, you love nature, you love wildlife. It's a great place to to see and experience God's creation in a, in a wonderful way, but it's fire prone. Mm -hmm. And that does come with a serious cost. Right, and exactly. We, I don't think we want to get into the economics <clears throat> of it today, um, but a lot of questions are begged then. Who's responsible right. for protecting your house? Well, you know, I, I was thinking that when I wrote this article for Answers Magazine on wildfire, yeah. um, one of the things I point out is that if someone does build in a fire prone area, they should understand the inherent risks. Absolutely. They can't just say, okay, I want the beauty of it. When you're building in a fire prone, when you're going to build in a, a tinderbox, okay, 
you have to assume those responsibilities that come with that. You know, it says in Proverbs 22, 3, uh, the prudent man sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. You know, I was just, you know, tongue in cheek. I was thinking if Jesus taught the parable, and you mentioned the wise man builds his house upon the rock. If Jesus taught the parable in California, uh, he may have modified that, uh, that parable and said it something like a uh, foolish man who built his house upon the sand. He might, rather than that, he might say foolish man builds his wooden house in tinder dry chaparral. <laughs> yeah. as, um, he, as he teaches from the Salton Sea, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. Because, it's you know, so it's a, and it doesn't necessarily mean we can't build, but we have to really do a, a cost-benefit analysis, a risk assessment, and say, uh, how can we really think long-term and say, how do we minimize the, the risk by, you know, encouraging any, any developers that are going to assume that risk to design, build, landscape, and retrofit existing structures to make them far less vulnerable. Yeah. Okay. Far less vulnerable to wildfires. And that might be including, uh, that might include clustering your development so that you're building houses sort of, you know, circle the wagons yeah. type development where they're closer to get, they're not scattered throughout the chaparral. Not ranchettes. Yeah. Necessarily. They're, yeah. and they're, they're clustered and they are in less vulnerable areas. And you surround them with well-watered barriers like orchards and other fire breaks. Yeah. So that if there is a shower, you, you just anticipate there's going there's to gonna be, be a fire. fire. There's going to be a fire. So yeah. how can we build in such a way that this development isn't going to go up with it? Yeah. That's good. You know, and there's just other things. And we've learned from our mistakes. You know, you can install non-flammable roofing, which will resist catching fire from flying embers, things like that. It is also prudent for communities to have effective warnings and evacuation strategies. So it just doesn't look like this thing was just put up mindlessly and, oh, you know, oops, we forgot. There's fires that come yeah. through here regularly. And, and maybe talk to your local fire managers. You know, is this a pl place where a prescribed burn might be beneficial? Uh, there's some uh, local prescribed burn in our, in your neck of the woods mm -hmm. uh, here, or uh, it was a forest thinning slash burn uh, project. And, you know, sometimes these things are done well, sometimes they're not done well. Right. Um, but at least having a sense for, you know, is this one of the tools in the toolkit that I, that I can take advantage of? Uh, I think another important thing to learn here is, is from ideas or techniques that haven't worked so well. And one mm -hmm. of, one of the responses, as I, I kind of mentioned earlier was, seeing a burned landscape and thinking this is just so, this is so tragic. This is such a, a net waste. Um, and one of the temptations as a follow-up response uh, from folks has been to log that area. Oh, there's mm -hmm. all these trees that are still have some economic value. Let's go ahead and log it. And that's called salvage logging. And it's actually probably the worst thing you could do for that forest after it burns. When it mm -hmm. burns, it's absolutely sensitive to erosion. Mm -hmm. So to put roads in and then cut down trees that are actually holding the soil really is one of, uh, puts an unnecessary burden of inputs into the stream, uh, reduces stream water quality, and then is going to actually probably cause a legacy of erosion. Whereas- What if, what if you leave the, I'm just curious, yeah. um, what if you leave the 
when they cut the trees down, leaving the stump and the whole root system. Yeah, that's a good strategy. You're still still trying to you trying to salvage the timber, but yet trying to keep you know the soil intact. Yeah, that's that. I think that's leaving maybe a few trees up so that you've got nursery logs and what do you call them? Nurse logs. The ones that. I know what you mean by it. Yeah, I'm not sure. No, I Um, think that's, that can be good. I think a couple of things here. uh, So we talked about the importance of fuel loads and that's been kind of the common mainstream narrative is that it's, it's because of fire suppression and all these fuel loads that have built, built up. That's the primary cause. And I would say that's not necessarily true. Uh, There's actually a big study done a couple of years back of 1500 fires and their fuel load and fuel load wasn't the primary indicator of if that area burned severely or not. It was actually some other factors, which include amount of wind and mm-hmm. which occlu- includes, it also made an important distinction between fine fuels and coarse woody debris, large fuels. Mm-hmm. And so fine fuels are the ones that get the fire started. And they're also the ones that cause the fire to travel. Right. And so when you hear about these fires that actually hop the highway and you wonder how that happens, or if you hear about a fire on the Snake River Canyon that hopped, hopped the river in multiple locations when it's pretty significant in size, that's because these fine fuels get windborne right. and uh, fires will actually create their own weather system yeah. and cause wind exactly. and they'll create a little bit of a vortex and that kind of feeds it and can cause it to, to become even more severe and, and even larger. Uh, so I think there are a, a number of factors there and the one I'm kind of alluding to here, and this, you know, this is probably a bit controversial and uh, I welcome the pushback. Um, but putting putting the road into the forest that burned is probably the the major problem of that technique of salvage logging, because now the road is a legacy erosion occurrence. It's not a paved road. It's a gravel and dirt road. And now it's going to continually release sediment to the stream. Whereas if you just let the fire go through and don't try to salvage log, there's going to be a pulse of erosion for a year or two, maybe even more. But that pulse of erosion is going to stop and those trees and those fine fuels or herbs are going to grow back. And so, um, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of factors we have to, and even if you've got people that really look at the pros and cons a little bit differently, it's so easy for people to get super polarized and entrench in a way that is unhelpful. And it's, it's great to see, you know, people from different, trying to hear each other out. Yeah. Rather than react. No, it's a big issue, especially with the fire industrial complex today. I think mm-hmm. over 50% of the forest's ser- forest services budget is, uh, is fighting fire. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely, uh, we definitely can do things better yeah. um, at that level in particular. And I'm sure there are many examples of folks who are doing better than others. There are a lot of different players in the, in the fire world. As you mentioned, state agencies, federal agencies, private firefighting companies. And I also think one of the neat things to take away here is this idea of place, is getting to know what, what are the different factors in the ecosystems that the Lord has placed you in. Right. Maybe you don't see fire ever. Maybe you, maybe you live in a pine, a loblolly pine forest in the Carolinas, and you do see regular kind of low-intensity fire. Um, that's something to, to learn more about and, le- right. and learn about how that, that disturbance can be a blessing in right. these places and also efforts that might come alongside to try to use that fire or to control it in, in a beneficial way. Of course, the environmentalists are uh, quick to say in some instances, it also depends on how extreme the environmentalist is, but 
basically saying that man caused climate change. That's generally the assumption. We caused it and it's causing all of these fires to be worse. And so I've looked into that a bit and it it turns turns out at least where that charge of uh, human caused climate change being the problem of these mega fires. It turns out that when you look a little bit closer, especially in the Australian fires, it's more of a function of how we've put ourselves in these fire prone areas. Oh, interesting. And also in Australia, because there was back when there was a lot more prescribed burns in the eucalyptus forest where they were managing the land and burning in a controlled way. Yeah. The the mega fires were way down. And then when there was uh, pressures from environmental groups to stop these prescribed burns, then the woody material built up. And the thing about eucalyptus is there's these resins in there that are highly flammable. Yeah. And so when there's a lot of fuel accumulation and it finally gets uh, sparked, then you've got this megafire that is much more devastating. And those megafires, I mean, the damages are so much more than the, the blessings. And so it's often the, the small controlled burns, although they're sort of a snap, you know, an unpleasant, a little unpleasantness for a while that we have to endure. We have to look at the big, it's kind of like trials in our spiritual life. We don't like the trial, but they're producing in us good fruit. And it's the same with prescribed burns. God knows our frame and he doesn't wipe us out with overwhelming trial that just devastates us. He gives us trials that we can handle. And it's sort of the same with these uh, trial by fire. These are controlled burns and it really reduces the risk of, of a mega fire. Yeah, I think another one of the challenges here is sorting out uh, the media. And one thing that I've noticed in the past few years is that, and I've heard, heard this said by a couple other people who are smarter than me, say, you know, trying to talk about this topic in the, in the regular daily media is challenging because the people writing the story really don't have enough context to do a good job. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would, I would also say that, for example, we hear, we hear mega a lot, we hear devastating a lot. I think some things that aren't being shared, and I read this, I read into this during the, the uh, I think it was 19, or sorry, 2019. When was the big last Australian bushfire year? It was like a year or two I ago. I think it was. Uh, right before COVID. Yeah. It dominated the news and then COVID took over. We never heard about mm -hmm. it again. But in, in, in reading the, about that story and in just reading about other fire stories and, and looking, if you're interested in looking at maps, if your kids like maps, go to the Interagency Fire Center. Um, and they have some wonderful data that uses Google Maps and some other interesting things. And one of the documents they've produced uh, is total U.S. wildfire acres burned 1926 to 2017. And if you look at that, it's pretty surprising that back running from about 1925 all the way through about 1950, uh, the total number of wildfire acres burned far exceeded what we've seen over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so we might call them mega and devastating, but that's in comparison to the fires of, say, the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And so good to have some historical context there. Another thing it's important to remember is that, 
And I think the devastating part of some of the U.S. fires recently is that they've been semi-urban in Chaparral in California, and there's been tremendous loss of property. Right. So that's one difference. Another thing that's important to remember when you're looking at these fires on the map or you hear the big numbers, this the Rattlesnake Fire Complex, I got to tour that uh, complex in central Idaho a couple of years back and they basically put aluminum foil all over the whole town of Dixie, Idaho. And I got to talk to fire managers and the fire ended up not coming up to that town. The town was spared. Um, but an important thing to remember is that when you look on a map and see the area of a fire, that's a matrix. That's not an entire burn zone. There are large patches within the perimeter of, a, of what we call a 200,000 acre fire that don't burn. Right. Or that burn lightly so or they, that burn severely. And so it's a lot more complicated when you get down on the ground and look at a fire zone because there are just like, just like microclimates the, in, your, in your weather in your town. Yeah. It's, the map will show just, it looks like the whole area is burned. But right. It's a lot more convoluted as far as what's burned. Yeah. What's not. That can give us a misimpression about the severity of a fire, mm -hmm. I think as well. So I think it's important to, it's important to read through a little bit of the pejorative language. Mm -hmm. um, that the media, the media likes to grab our attention. They like to scare us. They, they, they like to scare us with COVID. They like to scare us with climate change. They like to scare us with wildfire. Yeah. And wildfire is serious and it's important. And we do need to care about our neighbors. Right. And it's a tragedy when someone's life or property are lost. Um, right. But it's also important to, to understand that this is a, uh, this is a part of uh, the Lord's ecosystem disturbance toolbox. Right. And there are a lot of benefits there. Yeah. There are. We have a few fires going in our region now. If you look mm -hmm. at that interagency website, I looked at it right before I came, and the two fires we described aren't on there yet. Um, and, and but there are a few, a few in our neighborhood and throughout the throughout the U.S. And it's kind of an interesting exercise to, to talk about fire at home. Uh, of course, one of the things that we love to do as dads is teach our kids to make fires mm -hmm. in a wise, responsible way. Right. Uh, I taught that at a camp this summer. And learning about the behavior of fire at a very personal level, I think, is a rewarding way to, right. to investigate it, too. And being on a fire crew, oh, you, man. Def you definitely learn a lot about fire. Yeah. So tell um, us about what was, your, what was it like on the fire? What were your, what were your we tasks? Know. Well, initial attack, you, you come up, uh, often you're in the Thule, so you don't necessarily have water with you. You don't necessarily have pumper trucks. Got a Pulaski. Um, so you have to have a Pulaski, Adzai hose, shovels, and you string out and along our 20-man crew, and we'd build a fire, a fire line or a fire trail. And we would basically dig. We'd space ourselves out about 20 feet apart, and then one person would dig about a two, two-and-a-half-foot trail that was completely you scrape, you dig up all of the burnable material, and you're basically making a trail that you, you could actually hike on. Hmm. And you're building it, and then the guy behind you is also building a trail towards you, and he finally connects his trail to your trail. And then, well, since he's now connected to your trail, he's, he's uh, done his bit. So he walks up and catches up with you and says, bump. And then you jump up to the next guy. If you haven't finished digging or connecting, you bump up to the next guy and okay. bump, bump, bump. And eventually you, you really cruise with, you got 20 men digging. Yeah. And you're- How deep and how wide? About two and a half feet wide. 
you know, if it's a big roaring fire, you know, it's not going to stop it. But if it's a creeping grass fire, sagebrush fire, yeah, it'll it'll burn right up to your trail and stop. Okay, so if it's a ground fire, that's kind of the yeah ground that's fire. What you're going to do to slow it down? Trees to trees and stuff. Then you got to use, you know, retardant bombers and sometimes bulldozers building big fire lines. Yeah, which even that doesn't always stop them, but. Our fire lines could could stop a, a slow moving, not a in super intense fire, and you can really different people will be digging there at different rates as far as their section of trail, and you connect at different times, and you just bump up and and you keep bumping until and then you start a new trail and a new trail and then keep bumping, and then you basically build a uh, trail around the fire, and you maybe another crew is coming at you from the other angle. And then you connect your trails and then you all cheer when the fire burns up to that line. Wow. But, um. Are you out for, for a weeks on end or, or is it very. You know, sometimes, well, once, once you've contained the fire, uh, with all these crews containing the fire, then you do mop up, which means you go in and, you know, make sure that it's contained. It doesn't escape from within the perimeter of the fire line. And then you go in and start mopping up hot spots and hot spots are where trees are burning and smoldering and if we just let them be they can burn underground and catch another root on fire that's outside the trail or the outside the fire line and cross the trail underground so you want to dig out those stump holes and put it all out now this is what i was doing i was a grunt worker yeah i wasn't the a fire boss it sounds fantastic it, it, was, hard, it, was, it was hard work yeah. and you didn't always know how you pace, how to pace yourself okay. because you didn't know if you're going to be digging for, you know. A uh, year. <laughs> digging for hours on end yeah. or if it was a short sprint. Yeah. And you had water bottles and your water bottles would run dry pretty quick because you were super thirsty. And sometimes you would be, you'd dig your, your line and sometimes the main objective is now get water to the crew. And so somebody is carrying over Hill and Dale can't, big gallon canteens of water. However far away the parked vehicle yeah, was. Uh, and, and bring it to the crew. And yeah. so all these guys are drinking out of the same canteen. And, you know, I didn't know what thirsty was until I worked on a fire. Ooh, that's good. I mean, when you're so thirsty that you sort of want to, this fleshly desire to take the person that's in line in front of you. <laughs> right. Take them out at the knees. <laughs> Give There's me that this water. impulse to like <laughs> shove them to the ground. Let me at that water now. And, um, well, you know, good. when, when I came up to that canteen, my bottle, well, my personal bottles were dry. Everybody's bottles were dry. And you're coming up to a canteen and the temperature of the water is probably the temperature of your blood. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 warm. Yeah. And it's got, I don't know what percent backwash mm-hmm. of all these other guys drinking out of the same thing. So it's warm water. It's got backwash, you know, from all these guys. And it's the best water you have ever <laughs> had in your entire life. <laughs> That, when, mm-hmm. when that, yeah, that's thirsty. That's good. That's thirsty. <laughs> but, you know, 
it is a complicated thing, you know, pulling back to the big picture. And, uh, you know, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, um, listen, hear each other out, because it can be a, a heated topic, no pun intended. But I really recommend you you saw, have that book, The Big Burn. Yeah. I, I really uh, recommend that. It's a, it was the big fire of 1910. Yeah. In... Um, Western Montana, Northern Idaho, and a little bit of Eastern Washington. Over 3 million acres were burned. It was just the beginning of the Forest Service. Teddy Roosevelt, actually, Teddy Roosevelt, his presidency was over, but he started the Forest Service and put Gifford Pinchot in charge. And President Taft was supposed to carry, carry his vision on as far as this new Forest Service. So it's a, it's a very good book of the, the beginnings of the Forest Service and this, this amazing fire and these very brave foresters that were fighting it. And just a lot of, lot of true stories of cowardice, courage, and flame. I mean, we talked about the weather system. Oh, man, um, from a three I mean, million up by Wallace fire. Well, up by Wallace, there's this, this, this wind that comes in August sometimes in the Palouse. And it's uh, apparently the, it was just perfect, all the conditions, perfect storm. Yeah. You know, where there was a wet early spring. So there was a lot of growth and then it just stopped raining. So you had super dry forests with a lot of fuel mm-hmm. and then dry lightning. So you had lightning storms that came through northern Idaho and wasn't a lot of rain or fenny. So lightning strikes would hit and start these fires all over the place. Yeah. Little fires. Yeah. But then they would merge into big fires. And then a big windstorm called the Pelucer would sweep up from the, from the west, southwest, and come up through the Palouse and up into the Bitterroots. Oh, wow. And that really got the fire going. And, um, you know, when you have a fire, I mean, I never saw fires like this at all. Yeah. But at that 1910 fire, the big burn, you had- The big burn. The big burn. You had trees just crowning, but the wind was so strong that logs, big logs, burning branches that were, you know, a foot in diameter or more burning and- Coming down, raining down on Wallace, Idaho, flaming, flaming branches caught by the wind. The the fire would jump from ridge top to ridge top. Wow! So it so would that's jump. A, that's a long. I mean, that's distance. a long distance. Miles. Where? Well, I don't know miles, but maybe hundreds, but hundreds of meters, probably hundreds of meters, where your big burning branches were carried by the wind and wow. land on the other side of the of the valley must have been terrifying it was terrifying and so i highly recommend uh the big burn just really good writing it's a true story you learn a lot about mid-american history 1910 actually i don't know what you call that no i'm inspired Um, it's been on my shelf and i haven't so tim egan the big burn i've heard about this event a lot um and this Mm -hmm. comes to us uh relatively recent 2009 yeah so a hundred years after the burn, the book came out. Teddy Roosevelt and the Fire That Saved America is his subtitle there. Yeah. Cool. So lots to. Yeah. Super interesting topic. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, the, the Lord has given us seasons in the temperate zone and 
So it's fun to revisit things. We get to mm-hmm. continually relearn and learn new things each each uh, each fire season mm-hmm. or each winter or whatever whatever what have you. And so a nice idea or a helpful thing is when you can, it is nice to make some some learning things at home at least uh, seasonal in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, good stuff, Gordon. All right, thank you. Well, good sir. to see you. Good chat with you. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.